The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ivarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Last year, while teaching a workshop in Hollywood, I came upon an exhibit of photographs. The images were of life on Hollywood Boulevard during the 70s, a time when the city and the street were a big part of my life. I felt as if I were looking through a window in time, half expecting to see people I knew in front of me. The photography perfectly captured not only the characters, but the feel of the street back in the day. Six months later, I was introduced to the photographer Ave Pildes while attending Photo LA, and I was soon to discover a photographer who had had an amazing career, not only as a street photographer, but also a photographer of legendary jazz greats, including John Coltrane, Dizzy Gillespie, and Nancy Wilson. He's also responsible for numerous classic album covers and for years, a respected photo educator. As I sat in his studio in Santa Monica, I was treated to the story of a man whose camera had led him to lead an interesting and really creative life. Well, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it, Dave. Okay, and uh, nice to meet you again. (laughs) And... uh, um here we go. Yeah, I I was looking at the at the breadth of your work. It's really amazing. You know, the, the street photography, the jazz stuff, uh, you know, the the urban landscapes. Beautiful, beautiful work. And as I told you before we started recording, I happened on to an exhibition on Hollywood Boulevard last year while I was teaching a workshop. And I walked in there and I took a look at those those photographs. And it just brought a smile to my face because that was that was a Hollywood that I grew up with in the seventies, and I hadn't seen I hadn't seen that Hollywood in a very long time. So it was it was really interesting taking students out to photograph on Hollywood last year, knowing how much it's changed, and then yet seeing the Hollywood of my memory right there on on the walls. Uh, well, just wonderful. Uh, first, thanks for the thanks for the uh, props and the. Uh, uh, the Hollywood Boulevard was uh, really dear to me in, in that time as uh, I worked just around the corner from, uh, from Hollywood Boulevard. I worked at Capitol Records for a short time in uh, 1971 uh, as an art director at Capitol Records, which was, a, I would have to say, a so-so job. I wasn't ready for capital, and capital wasn't ready. For, <laughs> capital wasn't ready for me. But the the biggest problem was that the that the Beatles broke up uh, two weeks after I arrived at Capitol Records. So Capitol Records uh, went into this implosion, and which was uh, really an education for me to mm. see how a, a a big company was run, especially in crisis situation. Right. But after six months, I I uh, just opened my own uh, design studio. At that time, 
I had already been taking pictures for years, which was why I was hired by Capitol. I just kind of transitioned from uh, over a period of years uh, from design work to photography work because I couldn't get the kind of pictures I needed from photographers. So I started taking all my own pictures for my design. And then then it was just uh, much cleaner to be a photographer than it was to be a uh, designer. Yeah. When you were at, at Capitol and working uh, as a designer, even though it was a short period of time, what exactly was that that role. What was the what did the what did the, the job entail? Well, I got to uh, I got to take pictures of artists, mm-hmm. you know, and I got to design a- album covers. So, so and some of the album, and I got to deal with the egos of everybody okay. too. So, uh, uh, I did a Leon Russell album. I did uh, a Hoyt Axton album, and uh, I worked on the Ram McCartney album, you know, because he was yeah. he still still stayed with it. And a, a bunch of other ones, and and a lot of artists that uh, uh, many people had probably never heard of, and never will hear of, even though their albums were released, they they weren't promoted. So there were a lot of talented people that uh, that I got to be friends with and work with, who just never hit it. Right. You know, and it's a t- any creative business is kind of a tough business, but. Uh, you know, like I got to see the inner workings of that, and and uh, it's tough for somebody to a creative to make an album and uh, go into the studio, and put their love into it, and then uh, not have it released or right. have it released, and it didn't, you know, it didn't get any airtime. You know, and the people get uh, depressed and deflated, and and then every time somebody plays it or every time it gets a mention or or if the album succeeds and everybody's elated. But it's uh, it's really um, I think all creatives are are emotional about what they do. Yeah, that's that's part of what makes what they do good. And, and during that time, that album cover was really a critical marketing. Uh, it was. Tool. It was. Yeah. You know, and without getting into it, you know, like you could do an album and it could be it could really look great, and then they'd have to pay to have it placed in the right place in the right. in the uh, stores. You know, and then they had to pay, pay to get it played on the on the radio at that time. So it was, you know, there was the creative side where they where they had the uh, musicians and the and um, and then there was the business side, and those those always didn't uh, come together. Was, was it rare for a designer to be a photographer as well as you were? Um, I think that people who have uh, visual educations, you know, like uh, they can, it doesn't matter what tool they pick up if they, if they want to find out something about the tool, whether it's a camera or an airbrush or, or whatever it is, that they find a way to uh, use that, you know, and be creative with it. In my case, at the, at the time, there were three art directors there at the time. The other two were not photographers, and uh, they hired photographers. And I hired photographers, too. So So how would you come to decide whether or not you were going to shoot or, or whether you were going to have someone else do it? Some of it had to do with the budget, you know, and others uh, had to do with my uh, workload or whether I, I wanted to use somebody who who uh, came to me. And I was new at it. But, you and you had been photographing um, musicians way before you started working there, you yeah, work. I think that's one of the reasons why Capital was uh, interested in me. Uh, you know, like uh, as a kid in in well, 
let me start by saying I'm a failed musician. <laughs> so, so, and uh, you know, it hurts me to say that, but it didn't take me long to to uh, to figure out um, uh, that I was never going to be as good as all of the guys who I really uh, uh, liked. Yeah. And uh, you know, my mother twisted my arm as uh, as a uh, child to play the violin, and I was more interested in playing baseball. So I wasn't a very good violinist. And then in in high school, um, in high school I played a B flat trumpet. I wasn't uh, particularly good at, at that. I was more interested. Actually, it, it went like this. I think it went like uh, cars, sports, and girls. And then you know, like yeah. then they that gets turned around. So sometimes then it goes to girls, cars, and sports. And <laughs> but music didn't fit in, even though I really liked music. And then I started uh, when I got into uh, to art school or design school, I, I was interested in jazz and always was and started going to jazz clubs. So, And then, I, then uh, uh, a jazz musician that I met who was a, a young phenom named Eric Kloss, who was a, a saxophone player uh, who was blind, taught me to play the uh, alto sax. You know, over the telephone. Over, okay. over, <laughs> over the telephone. Uh, I wasn't very. I wasn't a very good saxophone player either. About the best I could do was CJM blues with somebody who was much better than I was. But it didn't stop my love for for uh, music, and um, and especially jazz, which I still uh, listen to a lot, almost exclusively. I can say that uh, it was a, a a good part of my life and very influential. In yeah, and, and your and your images are beautiful. You've shot Coltrane, Monk. The um, well, I had a little system, you know. Like while there were, I wasn't really conscious of uh, other photographers of jazz music or jazz musicians, and the ones that I did see uh, were mostly backstage shots or or uh, candid shots of 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 the musicians in in a friendlier situation not always not always performing and you know like not very many of them performing and i wasn't particularly interested in i wasn't particularly interested in that um because there were people doing that and uh, i was really more interested in taking pictures of the the musicians while they were performing mm-hmm. i had a pentax camera and and a triax film and there was the light was really bad because most of the the club most of these shots were taken in small clubs in the Midwest. Uh, I realized that I needed a really good lens, so I I bought a, uh, a Schneider lens or a Zeiss lens that uh, was really very fast and had a narrow depth of field, but it was uh, a big metal lens. It was heavy, but I used to set the focus and wait for the musicians to come into focus. And then take the picture yeah. because I wasn't fast enough in focusing the camera while they were moving around playing. So that was the way I was able to get uh, pictures that were at least in focus. And then I had to wait for the for them to be in the light because uh, I think when musicians are playing, it's a little bit different now. They're not. They weren't always uh, uh, conscious of being in the spotlight, or they turn around, or they. You know, they were into the into the music. So. Right. And I have photographed in venues like that, and decades later, the lighting hasn't improved much. <laughs> no. <laughs> They're not considering photographers at all no, uh, in those places. I, concerts are better, and, and I think that uh, if you have a backstage pass or you have a pass where you're allowed to get on uh, 
uh, stage, then then it's easier to uh, to uh, take pictures. But um, you know, I, I took those pictures for about two and a half years as a stringer for Downbeat magazine. I think the first couple pictures I took, somebody said, "Oh, those are good pictures," so I sent them to Downbeat, and they said, "Do you want to be a stringer?" And a stringer meant that uh, they gave you a press card and you could go wherever you want to and. If I took a picture that I liked and I sent it to them and they used it on the, in the magazine, they'd give me sometimes $5, sometimes $10. If they used it on the cover of Downbeat, then they'd give me $25. Yeah. So it, it wasn't, uh, I wasn't doing it uh, for money. In fact, um, except for commercial photographer, I was never taking pictures for money. I only was taking pictures for money when I was uh, uh, taking pictures of food and fashion and, uh, you know, sometimes industrial, like uh, uh, vice grips are things that ad agencies would send me. And and that was, uh, I'm not complaining about that because you have to use your creativity, you know, or, or architecture. I shot a lot of architecture. So my complaints aren't uh, about uh, not taking good pictures the pictures were good they were just always at somebody else's direction you know like i had a a job to do and uh and uh i did the best i the best i could okay what what were the clubs like because my only impression of those clubs is what i've seen in movies and you always see the sort of romanticized version of what those clubs were even when they're doing these biographic movies on you know Coltrane and all these people but wh- how, how do you remember those places well uh, certainly they were they were dark and they were um, for me they were uh, exotic as could be they were in uh, always in neighborhoods where not where I lived but in in um, uh, I guess uh, what you'd call mid-city neighborhoods now but uh, you know maybe in uh, I would say in Cincinnati Ohio where I grew up um, uh, the clubs were in the, in the ghettos. I can just remember saying I was going to a particular club, and people would, you know, people in Cincinnati, which which is a, a get, you know, which is a racist town, but and uh, uh, always was and still is. But people would tell me, "Oh, don't go to that club. It's not safe to go to that club." I never had any any problems going to uh, clubs. I, you know, like. Uh, I, I didn't have an attitude about it. I felt uh, 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 comfortable, you know, like um, it didn't take long for for people at the clubs to accept me and, and what I was doing. Um, uh, my heart was in the right place. I always would um, make sure that the, that the musicians got uh, prints of what I, what I uh, was taking pictures of. And if they had left town because they were on a circuit, um, I was able to uh, either pin the photograph up on the on the uh, bulletin board in the dressing room, so that the the next time the guy came around, he could uh, the musician came around, uh, he could take the picture, or another musician who was going to play with that musician the following week in a different city mm-hmm. would take the picture with him and. But the best part about that is when they uh, when they saw the picture when the musicians coming into the clubs uh, saw the picture on the bulletin board they'd say whoa that's a good that's a really good picture who took that picture hmm. and then they then they'd make sure that I I came to uh, to hear them and uh, take pictures so it was kind of uh, uh, carte blanche it was really a very good relationship you know. 
um, many of these musicians became uh, uh, friends of mine. I knew them, their their families, and uh, their kids. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that they just thought of me and my camera as uh, my camera was a musical instrument, you know, and they just realized that that was the same creative tool that they were using. And would you often be like the only photographer there, or was it like the only? Yeah. The only white guy there, you know. The uh, can I say something about Cincinnati, Ohio? Because yeah, because yeah. even though it's my home, you know, it has a reputation of uh, having a nasty police force and and being very conservative and and it was. And you know, the the musicians who came in, came through there were very careful. Uh, Cincinnati is right on the Mason Dixon line, so it was an underground railway city. So there were a lot of crackers who lived in Cincinnati, and if they didn't live in Cincinnati, they lived just across the river in Covington or Newport, Kentucky, which was uh, mafia-run at that time, Mm -hmm. so that there were bust-out joints and uh, uh, whorehouses and and, uh, uh, liquor being sold to... uh, uh, to anybody who could pay for it underage, it didn't matter, and that really wasn't cleaned up until you know, like uh, uh, the late late sixties, uh, maybe the seventies, when George Ratterman, who was a, a backup quarterback to Otto Graham, uh, became the sheriff of, of Northern Kentucky, and he he uh, tried to clean up uh, uh, Northern Kentucky. Which meant a lot of the a lot of the gangsters uh, from Northern Kentucky just moved across the river <laughs> to Cincinnati. So, so the the musicians when they came into town, you know, like uh, um, the police were were always looking for them. They knew that the the musicians were coming from the East Coast and that they many of them were drug users. So, so there were always undercover uh, cops in the clubs. And the and the uh, musicians had to be very careful. Even you know it was um, a big deal if you got caught with a joint, you know, or, or marijuana. Yeah. That, then you went to jail. I mean, and it was, uh, and you probably got beat up before they, you got to jail. So so that was tough for the musicians. And uh, you know, I think that uh, uh, all the musicians who were uh, heroin addicts. Um, they had a really hard time. They had to be uh, very careful, and and many of them got busted and couldn't make their next gig. Mm. You know, so it was the you know it was not a it was on the one side it was a terrible environment for for musicians. On the other side, it was a great environment because it was they were on a circuit. So when they weren't playing in New York and they had to go to Chicago for a gig. They, then they then they had to make a circuit of Indianapolis, Cincinnati, St. Louis, uh, Kansas City. So they were playing in these smaller towns that had a history of of music, but also had a history of um, of uh, race. Uh, I guess uh, racial unrest and uh, you know just yeah. yeah. I I sometimes admire artists who aren't photographers because they're either because of their work ethic or just the way they throw themselves in the work or there's just something about how they approach whatever their their craft is that leaves me very inspired and often very encouraged was was there one musician who who you saw in that light that even though they may have been they mean they weren't a photographer but they somehow sort of inspired what you were doing with the camera oh yeah, Larry Rivers is one who I don't have a picture of, but uh, I got to visit him once in uh, uh, New York. But he was a painter and a, and a uh, saxophone player. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but uh, but uh, one of my one of the musicians who became a really good friend of mine was Al Gray, and Al Gray was a trombone player who played uh, with Basie, but he also had a, a sextet, the Al, Al, Al Gray Billy Mitchell sextet, and they were really a, a driving smoke. You know, they most of the guys who played uh, in that group, including Bobby Hutchinson, who's still alive, uh, played with big bands so that they had a lot of power. You know. Um, and and as a small group, they had a lot of power. Um, but um, we spent a lot of time together. And uh, he was a cre- he was a creative guy in in uh, writing, and not just. Uh, and he was just a regular guy who was a great sax, a great yeah. uh, trombone player. So so uh, the musicians I became friends with. They inspired me because they were being creative, but they were just regular guys. There were some who had had issues, like everybody. But you know, um, I had a really good education. My first education was in architecture, so that was three D. And then, it, then as a designer, when I switched to design, I just used to uh, learn to use my hands, so I can draw and I can paint. You know. And it really doesn't matter that I have a, a a camera in my hands. You know, if it wasn't a camera, it would be something else. I would be making something in a shop. Or it's just that uh, when I was painting, I was painting, and my mind was always at a, at another painting. And painting was very slow, mm, very yeah. slow. And it just my mind was always racing. So um, it was just became my my weapon of choice became the camera. You know. That was that was the tool because I could realize the I could realize the image much faster. Now, as as I got more involved with photography and tried to expand what the camera can do, then then the results aren't as immediate because you can you can ed- then you have an editing process or you can combine pictures or you're working on a story where there are many pictures or it's a uh, in the case of Hollywood Boulevard it isn't just one picture it was two and a half years of pictures so that meant that you know I was on Hollywood Boulevard for a long time and or for instance I have a 40 year collection maybe even longer of uh, animal pictures so not not pet pictures. They're not pet pictures. Right. They're they're pictures of uh, the relationship of people and animals, or society and animals. That means that we use them in advertising, and we eat them, and we wear them, and we go to the zoos and watch them. And so uh, animals are really um, part of uh, uh, human uh, humans' lives and culture sort of economy everything i i love that series that that you did because i think some of the best photography out there when you see it all of a sudden you go oh that's right that stuff is there and the pictures that you took of like advertisements or these sort of uh constructions of animals that are that are being used to promote something uh, like a storefront or whatever it is and it was just like wow that is kind of odd this whole idea that you're in this sort of urban environment where animals are not present except maybe for our dogs and cats but all of a sudden these sort of wild animals are ever present but they're man-made you know posters or or facades or or or, or whatever they are and just the fact that you had an eye for that and as i see them as a group of photographs it kind of reveals sort of that odd absurdity of, of existence in in 
you know, in an urban, in a city environment where these animals sort of pervade but are never really seen other than in a zoo, in a cage? Well, I, I must admit I look for things that are, that are unusual, um, and sometimes they're unusual to me and not unusual to other people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if something, if you get turned on by something, then, then I think that my, in a way my responsibility is to sort of capture it and, and be able to show it to somebody else and say, and, and a photograph says, oh, did you see this? You know, do, do you respond to this also, mm-hmm. or is it... And I and I also have to say that uh, some of the pictures that I that I respond to or take uh, might be completely off the wall and and just fly right by other people and they don't they don't get it or maybe I don't get it, mm-hmm. you know. So it's not always it's not always clear, you know. One of the things that I dreaded about uh, or I dread about all interviews are. Somebody's going to ask me who my favorite photographer is, and <laughs> and I'm going to beat you to this because you know that's a tough one. There's uh, hundreds of maybe thousands, you know, mm-hmm. of, uh, and they're um, and sometimes I remember their names and sometimes I don't remember their names. For me, it isn't. There are there there are certainly photographers who I I gravitate towards because I think they have a body of work where they have a lot of good work, and then there's others who's work I, I don't respond to, but I know that it's, it's good work. And, and, and then there are pictures that I just, you know, like it could be a well-known artist or photographer, and I don't get it, you know, right. so uh, I don't respond to those pictures. So, so for me, I think that I, I have a criteria of what's a, what's a good picture, so I think I know what is a good picture. And, uh, and uh, the, two, the two things that are important are content and composition and and sometimes you have one or the other and sometimes you have them both together mm-hmm. when they're both together then i can really say whoa that's a really good that's a really good photograph um that doesn't mean i'm not interested in the pictures that have great content but but are you know like um i i think a good example the one that comes to my mind is gary winograd who is a street photographer Gary, and he was from the West Coast here, and Gary was an incredible photographer. He couldn't see very well, so he he never really looked through the camera to take pictures unless he was charged with doing that, you know, like on an assignment where he had to get a specific picture. But So he kept the camera set at, set at something that he knew he would get the image, and, and he, but he had a, a real sense of what was going on around him. So he could feel what was going on, and when he felt something, he just sort of swung around and took the picture without ever knowing what was in the frame. Mm-hmm. So, so his, his um, horizon lines are always, you know, like 30 degrees off or, you know, really off. And, you know, like he'd get a half a picture in or somebody's hand sticking in the picture. But the content was incredible. So what he took pictures of was just so spot on about what was going on around him that it didn't matter what the composition was, you know? On the other side, there are people who take beautifully composed pictures and and it's uh, bubblegum inside. And, and where do you feel you fall between having almost exacting control of your frame and then Gary sort of loose, loose framing? So, well, I'm certainly on the opposite end of Gary Winograd, except for the content part, you know. 
but I, but I, because of my design education, I'm very conscious of of the uh, the frame, you know, you know, and I have this habit. So when I was, uh, I think, from about 1970, uh, I started, uh, you know, I filed out a negative carrier a little bit so that you could see the frame line, mm-hmm. and I think that that was popular at that time. And that meant when I printed a picture, that was the proof of the frame. And I could also tell uh, which camera I, could, I was using because the cameras, uh, even though the, the, uh, the window was stamped in the camera, they were sometimes they got a little nick in them or, or they, they had some handwork done afterwards, especially uh, uh, the cameras that I had. And so each camera was slightly different so I could see the rounded edge. You know, sometimes they, they were a bit more rounded or a bit less rounded. So I knew which camera. And that, for me, was the proof of frame. When I uh, switched over to digital, I continued, I continued that by adding a frame, adding a black line to the, to the, uh, the picture. The, as proof of frame. A lot of people don't like that, and it's just a, a simple black line around there. But uh, I still I don't like to crop my pictures. And the reason that I don't like to crop them, one of the biggest reasons is that I don't want to have to remember where I cropped the picture. <laughs> you know? So, so yeah. you know, and I've seen... I've seen other uh, photographs by other people where, oh, I've seen this photograph before, but that's, it's a little bit different crop this time than last time. Yeah. And when I was shooting commercially, you know, like, and you give the, you give the, the picture to the client, they, they, they crop it however they want. And if it was a commercial job, then I just looked the other way and let that happen. If they hired me to take a picture where they wanted, my, wanted it to be my picture and there were no controls from the client mm-hmm. then on the back of the prints that i gave them it said uh, copyright in its entirety including uh, the black border so then the picture couldn't uh, be used without the black border then i was assured that it was going to be the entire frame mm-hmm. but it's a little it's a little uh, uh, tricky and i think um, now even though i feel the same way and i don't like for people to crop my pictures you know, whenever there's an obstacle thrown up in, in, in front of me, maybe because of my age now, you know, just it's the same as when somebody, if I ask them if I can take their picture and they say no, I just say, okay, and I go on to there's another picture to be taken just two seconds away. And the same thing if somebody uh, uses my picture in what I think is an inappropriate way, instead of me chasing them or sending them a threatening letter now, I just say, I don't have time for that. I have to get on with it, and I just don't give them a, a picture the next time. Yeah. So I think you learn to fight your, fight your battles, as I hate to say that, but uh, you have to do that so that you can get on with the business of making more images. Yeah. You know, after you left Columbia, you, you said you started uh, becoming a freelance designer and photographer um, and doing all this commercial work. And a lot of photographers, when they start doing that commercial work, their sort of their personal work gets put aside just because so much time is dedicated to earning a living. And sometimes they're just so tired and burnt out that the idea of picking up a camera is the last thing they want to think about. But a lot of your uh, the work that, that I've seen is your personal work. So uh, were you always with a camera? How did you find time to you know, dedicate it 
to the stuff that wasn't commercial, that was the personal work? Well, there's about three questions there. So in the film part of my life, uh, I always had uh, uh, two cameras, and I had them uh, strapped to my waist. So there was a color camera and a black and white. They, they had uh, very similar lenses. They were the same camera. So I think maybe one was a, a 24 and a 21, or one was a 24 and a 28, and, uh, because I like wide angles. And then uh, sometimes I would carry a, uh, an 85 with me, but most of my camera are, are the whole picture instead of uh, close-ups. So um, yes, yes, I would say my, my personal work suffered. I, and, and it was difficult if I was on a job and I saw something that was not connected to the job. I wasn't, uh, couldn't change the film out, so then I would have to make sure that the clients didn't get those personal pictures, so there would often be holes in my contact sheets, mm. so, and I wouldn't give, make sure that I protected those negatives, but, you know, I'm happy for the, the I was happy for the commercial work. It afforded me a living. I could pay my, uh, my rent. And uh, and the things that I needed to pay, I, I only begrudge it uh, in a way now. But in 2008, when I uh, I also had a parallel career teaching. In 2008, when I stopped teaching, I took all of the commercial work that I had done. Maybe there's a, f- a couple things like uh, I think I might have saved some food images and a few architecture images. I took all of the transparencies, all of the prints, and everything. And I destroyed them. So all of the commercial work I've, I've destroyed for two reasons. One is that I, I didn't want to take care of it anymore, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, 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 catalog it or, you know, like uh, archive it. And, and uh, I also, um, even though I thought the pictures were good, I didn't feel that they were all of me in, in there, you know, so... You know, I'm just smiling now while I'm talking. I can remember just uh, standing on the roof out here and taking the transparencies, which were all in and either in plastic uh, frames or cardboard, and just uh, trying to fly them uh, off the roof into the <laughs> into the alley and watching and watching the cars run over them. And that, and then and then uh, on the following. Uh, uh, Thursday or whenever the the uh, st- st- street cleaner came through, then they were gone. Uh, unless somebody came along and picked them up, it was uh, it was a relief. Yeah. You know, it was a relief. So l- let's let's talk about the the work that you did in Hollywood. Um, I think there was a period of about three years where you're doing the black and white yeah. work on Hollywood. You described that, that the commercial work. One of the reasons you parted with it was just because you didn't see much of you in 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 the work, is that right? Is that yeah? The com- the commercial work was. I mean, I put my energy to it. I the composition was there, but you know, like uh, uh, how how excited can you get by taking a, a a picture of a? You know, I can remember shooting oil wells. You know, like uh, or doing some studio photography of an inanimate object. Of you know, like a a, a, a tool for Black and Decker or something. You know, a drill. Uh, <laughs> they did. They wanted pictures of the drill. They didn't. They. I think things are more creative now with some companies where you can do something that's really off of the wall. Right. But uh, at that time, it wasn't off of the wall. You, you know, like you were hired. There was a day rate. 
you know, it, it was if you were working for an ad agency, they'd give you a plum job where they might where they might send you to. One of my clients was Minolta, so they had a little underwater camera. So I would, so they they you know you could do it in a fish tank, you know. But they send you to to Acapulco with a, with a half a dozen models, and you and you're taking pictures of, of their underwater camera taking pictures. Mm-hmm. They would give you that job if the week before or the week after you would uh, agree to uh, take pictures of a, a Black & Decker uh, drill, yeah, you know, or some drill bits. So I'm not saying that the the jobs in, when they sent you out of the country weren't fun. They were fun. They were different for me than, you know, like me recognizing something that was unusual on the street or me trying to do a studio picture of of something, you know, of a still life that I set yeah. up for me. So th- there was a, a schizophrenia there, you know? Yeah. Well, tell me about that, because you have a really interesting series of portraits on Hollywood Boulevard of various characters uh, that look like they were shot ar- around the same um, same area. Uh, tell, the, me, tell, me, tell me about those and why they resonate so much for you. A technique I used is I, I would set up a, a tripod and the camera on the tripod, and I found a set... And on Hollywood Boulevard, there was all these sets. So they were storefronts, or they were uh, the fronts of restaurants, or they were just, uh, you know, the stars on the street were very important because this the, the walkway is called the Walk of Fame, and it's terrazzo, and it has stars built into it. So the stars have a, a, a dark bottom, you know, the floor, and then the walls were often uh, lighter. So it was really set up graphically for black and white pictures in a way. And sometimes there would might be a window in the background or nothing in the background, just a wall, or or maybe it was a uh, the front of C's Candy, which was also black and white. So mm-hmm, yeah. uh, mostly, I, I would choose things that were graphic because that was what resonated to to me, and um, you know that's part of my education. And then I don't have a problem talking to people on the street. So when a when a person would uh, uh, come by. I might say to them, oh, where'd you get that jacket? Or, you know, like, uh, what kind of dog do you have? Or, you know, like, uh, or uh, do you mind uh, posing for a picture, you and your buddy? Or, you know, like, uh, um, are you, uh, you know, just whatever. Or sometimes people were just curious what I was doing because it was Hollywood and they were sort of used to to, uh, cameras, especially the older people uh, that were walking on Hollywood Boulevard. And uh, because that that was Hollywood Boulevard was on the turn then it was fading and so there was a an incredible mix of people there so there 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 were old bit players you know who were still dressing in uh, in in ties and faded suits waiting to be discovered and then there were then there were uh, um, uh, junkies and hookers. And and um, you know like uh, runaway uh, kids and and uh, you know just uh, people riding their bicycle by and just just anybody a really uh, a great a really terrific cross section of life was coming through there. Yeah. You know, as soon as you start taking a picture of one person, um, then people come by and they try and photobomb the picture. So so some of the pictures are. Um, people looking in, and uh, then they become part of the frame. 
you know, and and uh, and then they become subjects too because before they leave, I say, hey, can I take your picture? And uh, I started out by getting releases from everybody, but it just got to be uh, terribly difficult to mm-hmm. do that. <laughs> and uh, I would say more than half of the people were transient to begin with. So getting in touch with them or getting their correct name, that was impossible too. So so I just gave that up. And, and uh, after I had uh, thousands of pictures and I edited them down, I... I uh, Used to uh, to travel to uh, Europe every every summer. To uh, uh, I had a daughter there. I had gone to uh, uh, school there. I I took the pictures to uh, to Zoom in France in I guess uh, maybe seventy six, um, which was just after I had taken a lot of these pictures. And uh, Zoom went crazy and and published I don't know ten pages of the pictures. Wow, you know, and and some of them. I think a couple of them were full page, and then and then as you got back into the article, they became uh, contact size, so they published hundreds of pictures. After that, you know, like it was uh, in a way over for me. A couple other people published the, some of those pictures, and I put all of the pictures away. I didn't see them for forty years. Mm. You know, and then uh, I guess where you saw the pictures at Lace. Sarah Russin, who is the director of Lace, uh, knew me, and she had just become the director, and Lace was sort of new to Hollywood Boulevard, having having the exhibition space, the city exhibition space there. Uh, she asked me if I had photographs, uh, and I said, I have the perfect pictures for you. They're from Hollywood Boulevard. So that's how that, oh, sh- that's how okay. that, show, wound, that's how that show wound up there. Since, uh, I mean, the the life of photographs is, is so incredible, especially when you start n- attaching uh, nostalgia to them or history to them, uh, then they become more valuable. So I made a little catalog for that show, which was, you know, just a simple little uh, book that has uh, 10 pictures in it. Uh, Lace offered that to people uh you know, if they wanted to buy it, I think they could buy it. I think they, they sold them for $15. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. But so or so, somebody, and the money went to Lace. I didn't care about that uh, because Lace is nonprofit um, uh, space. But somebody sent uh, one of the books to uh, LACMA, a curator at LACMA, and they contacted me and they bought some pictures. Oh, nice. You know, so so those pictures of Hollywood Boulevard are in the collection of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. At the same time, the New York Public Library that has an incredible photo collection, you know, they, they buy pictures, they display pictures. They were having a, a show of 175 years of, of photography, and they contacted me because they had heard about the Hollywood Boulevard pictures. They bought a, a bunch of pictures and a box set of prints uh, for the for the library. So um, uh, I was in that show with really a, a lot of very good photographers. I was so uh, so proud of that. I mean, that was uh, I was in really good company. So and I had no idea when I was uh, taking the pictures <laughs> uh, what I was going to do with them yeah. or what the life of them was going to be. And it's it's what I find remarkable about those images, beyond just nostalgia, is the fact that it captures 
the nature of a city in, in that particular time. Los Angeles, because of its size and because of the way it's laid out, um, is, um, is very segregated. And you can have communities that where, where people gather socially that reflects that. But Los Angeles at, at that time, in terms of social centers, uh, Hollywood was it. It was like that, maybe Westwood to some extent. But Hollywood brought together a diversity of, of people that was unlike anything else that you would have found in the city. And I see that reflected in the photographs that you took there. That's uh, that's very true. I mean, uh, um, you know, they still had music schools there, so there were people who would be carrying their instruments. They, you know, like uh, they they had uh, uh, young guys that went there because that's where uh, young girls were. Mm-hmm. So they had that cross section. They had uh, uh, acting schools there, so there were people who were dressed in costume. You know, there were people walking their dogs. There, there were people doing. I mean, it was just it was just full of life. Yeah, and families walking down the street like Fam- mine, going all the way, not like now where it's all localized, like on Highland and uh, Hollywood and Highland, but that whole street would just have thousands of people walking up and down the street, especially on Friday and Saturday nights. Exa- exactly, and it was a, I mean, one of the traditions that still exists there are uh, Halloween. Mm-hmm. So, um so, I mean, now the big place is West Hollywood, but there's still a lot of people who go to uh, Hollywood Boulevard for Halloween today. And it was big in the 70s. Um, I, I found that, you know, um, there weren't these costumed characters up around uh, what was Grauman's Chinese uh, uh, theater, which was at Highland and La, and La Brea, between Highland and La Brea, where all the activity is now. Uh, with uh, uh, tourists, people dressed in costume and, and uh, lots of picture taking, and then at the other end at Vine, where there's you know some restaurants and maybe a club or two and and uh, um, some residential. That's that's where action is today. But in the middle, where where most of the pictures I took in the seventies, it has not changed. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's it's still seedy. It's still on the term. Uh, now, um, some of the restaurants that were there are gone, but now they've been replaced with uh, head shops and, and uh, probably um, a few, a couple marijuana shops and, and uh, some uh, lingerie shops. But the people who, who walk past, uh, walk back and forth, are still um, junkies and addicts and, and uh, hookers and. Uh, People looking to get in trouble. So um, I I could um, just take my camera and my tripod, go to the same locations or similar um, as I did 40 years ago, and the costumes would change um, to reflect the you know what people are wearing today. But the people, the types of people are going to be exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And the diversity is going to be exactly the same, you know? So you're still getting out there and shooting. Uh, now you're shooting digital rather than, than film. I am shooting way. digital. Uh, an interesting thing that I did, um, I don't know where you're going, but I, but I thought of something. An interesting thing that I did last 4th of July, uh, last 4th of July I took an uh, American flag that I have that, and I've used it as a prop before, and I took it down to... Fifth and San Pedro, which is right in the middle of Skid Row, mm-hmm. and there's a there's a recovery house on that corner, 
and they have a fence around the recovery house. So I took the flag and I hung it upside down on the on that corner, um, on the fence. And the first comments that I got were, "What are you doing? Do you know the flag's upside down?" And that's before I had set up my uh, camera or anything. And I said, "Yeah, there were a couple of vets there who were homeless." And I said, "Yeah, um, it's a it's a sign of distress." And they said, well, "How'd you know that?" Because they were a little stoned or out mm-hmm. of it. And I said, "Well, look around. You know, what do you think? Do you think that this place is distressed?" And they said, "Yeah." And they said, "Well, what are you going to do?" I said, "I'm going to take pictures of people in front of the flag. It's the Fourth of July. It's a celebration." You know, they said, can we help? (laughs) You know, so they helped me hang the flag up, you know, and uh, I mean, they were they were stumbling around a little bit. Mm -hmm. They were the first couple guys I took pictures of. Then they then they uh, one guy, Nick, uh, started recruiting people for me, you know, hey, can you want to have your picture taken or, you know, and. So uh, uh, people would uh, uh, come up and I'd take a picture of them in, in front of the flag. And, I, you know, the purpose wasn't, I was down there on Skid Row and it wasn't to take pictures of people shooting up or lying in the gutter. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the purpose. The purpose was um, uh, to, you know, it was the 4th of July and to just bring some portraiture you know, like to just to capture who these people were in front of the American flag. They weren't made up or anything. They they were just walking by. Do you want to have your picture taken? You know, and so the so then a, a, a woman showed up with a an American flag bikini on and heels, and um, the top wasn't a halter; it was sort of a blouse, but it was American flag too. Uh, I asked if I could take her picture, and she said, um, will you buy me a bottle of water? And I said, sure. So um, I gave her a dollar, you know, because you could go across the street and get a bottle of water mm. for a dollar. But um, she, I took a bunch of pictures, and she got into it. She was posing for the, you know, like uh, vamping a little bit to, to have her picture taken. And then she disappeared after that. I don't know what her name was. Two minutes, you know, like maybe five, ten minutes later, there she was on the uh, right on the corner there with a bullhorn and a bottle of water, uh, yelling into the bullhorn, "Come get your picture taken, get a dollar." <laughs> you know, <laughs> "Come get your picture taken, get a dollar." It was loud, you know, and in no time I had a lineup around the block of people wanting to get their picture taken. Did you have enough dollars? What I did have enough dollars. I had enough dollars because I, I went to the bank and I got uh, $100 worth of $1 bills, not knowing whether I'd, oh, I'd need okay. them or not for whatever, yeah. you know, and they were all brand new, you know, and I just gave, I just gave them out to people, you know. I haven't, that was in, in July the 4th. Here it's, you know, like eight months later, I've not printed any of those pictures, but I did make a video from the stills. And, yeah, I saw that. Those, those oh, yeah, that's very cool. And that, and so it's a little interesting because it's it's stop action, and um, you know I got uh, I, I used uh, I sam- I sampled some uh, uh, music, which was Kate Smith, who was probably not known to anybody now, but when I was growing up, she was uh, a pop singer that sang patriotic songs Mm -hmm. so she she was the foremost singer of god bless america 
So I have that as a soundtrack, as as these people standing in front of the flag. So I probably will print those uh, um, as stills because I think individually they have a similarity to the Hollywood yeah, Boulevard pictures. Yeah. You can see that some of the some of the people can barely stand, and you can see some of the people are just joyous. You know, standing there, or the family of kids are just standing there. They're homeless. They're happy. Um, at least at the moment, it, it's just about it's just about them and the camera. the The statement is is just the person. Uh, you know, the statement. I'm not saying, okay, are you guys living in a in a tent here on the sidewalk? It it isn't that at all. Yeah, you know, it's about the, their humanity. It's about their humanity. Yeah. So, I mean, there's some similarities to that. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I asked them to recommend one photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, three of them uh, uh, come to uh, mind. I think uh, uh, Greg Cemento. Cemento. Yeah, Greg Cemento, yeah. He's a, uh, I don't know him very well. Um, but but uh, he he sees the irony in uh, in pictures, so uh, you know uh, I would recommend him. I would also recommend uh, or- Orville Robinson, mm-hmm. who I don't know personally, but I have a cor- uh, a sort of a correspondence with him on Facebook. But I see his pictures all the time, and he's he uh, he's fearless. He'll take a picture of anything, <laughs> and uh, and uh, but he's kind of like uh, Gary Winograd in that um, the pictures are they're really good pictures. You know, he he lives and works in New York, and he takes pictures of what's going on on the street. And then uh, then a uh, uh, a young friend of mine uh, who I do know very well, David Valera, who uh, who is. Quite some years, uh, my junior, who's a very talented uh, photographer. Great. Young well, guy. the first two I've had as guests on the show. Oh, I didn't know so, that. So, no, that's great. For, so, for people who are listening now, if they have the uh, the app, they can do a search and listen to those interviews. And uh, David is a friend and someone I probably will have on the show sometime, sometime soon. So, surprise, David. Get ready. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. No, Eric. thank it you. It was a pleasure for, for you to be here and for me to spend some time with you. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Abe for joining us on The Candid Frame. You can check out his work at avepildes.com. And thank you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations like the one you heard today. Thanks to Roland Matos, Rob Jenkins, Packy Dragon, and Jeffrey Allen for their five-star reviews. You can also support the show by making a regular monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash the frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and the Candid Frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on the donate button on the Candid Frame website or the show notes. 
Thanks to all of you who have recently contributed to the show, including Luis Felipe Bento and George and Jane Rose. Thanks for believing in us. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candor Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandorframe.com. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at X. Remember to help spread the word. And this is X, and this is The Candid Frame.